Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. This week the outline is in your bulletin, so you can find that on the last page. And I don't want the list of Scripture passages to frighten you. Uh, We won't be here any longer than we than we normally are, though it looks like I have bitten off a little more than I can chew, and I admit that up front, uh, but we'll, uh, I, I think it will be beneficial for us all. As I mentioned last week, we're pausing in our study of Ephesians uh, so that we can celebrate the Incarnation. We're taking the time uh, to commemorate Christ's first coming and to anticipate His second. We're, we're, we're taking the time to Uh, think about and and delve deeper into the Messiah that Israel longed for and the Savior that we long for to return. And uh, last week we looked at Christ as our prophet, and this week we will look at Christ as our priest. Uh, So if you would stand with me in the honor of God's Word, I'm going to begin reading in chapter 6, verse 19, and I'm going to read through chapter 7, verse 10. So hear now the word of the Lord. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without a father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See now how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to uh, to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We have, throughout the course of the beginning of our worship, we have read from Psalm 110 and Hebrews chapter 6, the end of 6 through all of 7. And, and we've read 
of a great high priest. And we're grateful for that great high priest. We thank you for that priest who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And now I would pray that you would bless not only the reading but the hearing of your words so that your people might understand more fully what that means. What the priest, our Lord Jesus, has done for us and continues to do for us like none other. So bless us now. Bless the preaching of your word. Speak to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I know that's a lengthy passage and we read uh, lengthy passages earlier, but as I just prayed, I hope that we will come to a greater understanding and a more fuller understanding and a greater appreciation of Jesus as our great high priest, what he has done for us and what he continues to do for us. Uh, As I mentioned last week, God is a God who uh, not only makes promises, but he keeps his promises. And And we saw that he promised a prophet and he delivered a prophet, that prophet being Jesus. Well, he also promised uh, by an oath to appoint a priest. And we read that in Psalm 110. Uh, Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we know, as as we heard from Daniel reading the first part of 110, uh, that David uses the words, the Lord says to my Lord. And so we know that he's speaking of the Messiah. He's referring to that coming Messiah. But what's so fascinating, I I believe what's so fascinating about this particular psalm is that he's not only promising a priest, uh, but he's promising a very significant change. And those Israelites who would have heard that psalm and read that psalm would have understood that this is significant. Something is about to change that we need to pay attention to. And so when we need to remember when David writes this psalm, uh, he is under the old covenant or under the Mosaic covenant and therefore under the Levitical priesthood. Uh, but, but here, while he says that the Messiah was to be a priest... He doesn't say that the Lord Jesus or the Messiah is going to be from uh, the priesthood of the Levites or the Levitical priesthood. He says that the Lord is going to be from the order of Melchizedek. In other words, David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says very clearly that things are going to change. There's going to be a priest, but he's going to be a new kind of priest. And the writer of Hebrew, uh, Hebrews naturally answers or answers what are some very natural questions when it comes to that statement. Uh, why the change and what does that change look like? And so that's going to be, uh, well, our outline is going to help us answer those questions or we're going to read through and, and, and look at how the writer of Hebrews answers those questions. Your outline, again, is found in the, in the back. Two very simple points. What didn't change and what did change? What didn't change and what did change. Let's look first at what didn't change. So since the fall, we know and and have understood through our reading of Ephesians that man has not only been separated from, but has been at odds with God due to our sin and His holiness and righteousness. It's always been the case and continues to be the case. And just as we needed a prophet or a mediator through whom God would approach and speak to His people... We were also in need of a priest or a mediator through whom we could and would approach and draw near to him. We needed the prophet for him to speak to us. We needed a priest for us 
to draw near to him. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 5, verse 1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. It's always been the case. So God is not only holy and righteous, He's just. And so we know that sin, that sin that separates us from God, is or or requires judgment or is deserving of judgment. In other words, there's always been, uh, there's always, it's always been necessary for there to be a payment for sin. In, In words we, we kind of are more familiar with, the writer of Romans, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. So in the old covenant, in the Mosaic covenant, the high priest would offer these gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people. He would stand in their place on their behalf and offer those sacrifices and thus satisfying God's justice and also demonstrating the mercy of God in that an, an innocent animal was offered in the place of sinful man who, who uh, was and is guilty. So when we read of David's words in Psalm 110, and then again in Hebrews, we know that while something was going to change, one thing specifically that wasn't going to change was our need for a priest, a need for a mediator who would stand in our place between us and God, offering sacrifices necessary so that we might approach Him. That's always been the way. It continues to be the way. So the question is then... What did change? What was different? And the simple answer is the type of priest and the type of sacrifice. The type of priest and the type of sacrifice. In other words, as your outline shows, it's, it's basically out with the old and in with the new. Let's look first at out with the old. Through the Mosaic Law, God established a priesthood and he, uh, that would act on behalf of the people. And he also provided that priesthood with a code or a system to follow. Okay, so he didn't just give them responsibilities. He gave them what they needed to fulfill those responsibilities. And that role and those responsibilities were carried out through the tribe of Levi. The problem was, and the writer of Hebrews points this out, that the, Lev- the Levites or that priesthood did not, because they could not, achieve or accomplish the salvation of the people. Now hang, hang with me here. Yes, the priesthood and and the code they were to follow were both established by God, but neither were fully capable of accomplishing the mediation that we needed. And I know the light bulbs are starting to go off, right? What I mean is because God was holy, perfection and permanence was necessary, but neither was possible through the Levitical priesthood. And interestingly, the, the priesthood itself... And the ceremonial law, the code, demonstrated their insufficiencies by their very nature. Now here's some examples. One, the priests themselves weren't holy. And there are a couple of examples of that. First, it's evidence because uh, they had to put on, and we read through Leviticus, they had to put on all of this priestly garb. Right? They had robes and they had vestments and they had bells dangling off the, the ends of the robes and, and all of this very colorful uh, outerwear that they needed simply to enter into the Holy of Holies. 
This gave them what? An outward appearance of being holy. Why was that important? Because there was no inward holiness. They had to look the part because they weren't really the part. Secondly, they had to make sacrifices before they entered. They had to make sacrifices on their own behalf before they made sacrifices on behalf of the people. Secondly, the Levitical priests, the writer of Hebrews says, they would die. And so their, their carrying out of those responsibilities were temporary. They weren't going to last because they themselves would eventually die like every man does. And thirdly, those sacrifices that they made had to be made on a daily and yearly basis. So the fact that they had to be made daily and yearly, we know that they never truly satisfied the debt that they were supposed to satisfy. Or they wouldn't have been continued on a regular basis. Now the temptation, and again those light bulbs or those, those thoughts you had, the temptation is to ask, or for us to ask, did God establish something that didn't do what He established it to do? Sounds like it in, in some way. Or another way to put that is really, did God mess up? He established it, but it didn't work. Well, the answer to both of those questions is no. Because the reality is, the law was perfect, and it did, in fact, accomplish all that it was to accomplish. Because God established the law, the ceremonial law, uh, He never intended for it to actually save people. The purpose of the law was meant to point to the one who would. In other words, the insufficiencies of the priesthood and the sacrifices pointed to the sufficiencies of the priesthood and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It did, in fact, do what God intended it to do. So that's... The out with the old. Let's look at the in with the new. The Levitical priesthood and the ceremonial law pointed to Christ, but it was never meant to be the basis for His priesthood. It pointed to it. It wasn't the basis of it. And the writer of Hebrews, we read back in Psalm 110, and then the writer of Hebrews explains that Christ was from the order of Melchizedek. And we don't know much about Him. Really, all we know is from Genesis 14, verses 17 to 20, and then what the writer of Hebrews says here. Um, and, and the writer of Hebrews, and I want to walk through these things. Uh, I, I don't want to be overly quick, but I do want to move quickly so that we can get to you know, the so what and the now what. But I think it's important for us to understand these five things that the writer of Hebrews lays out in regards to Christ and his priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. And the first is this. According to the law, priests could not be kings, and kings could not be priests. They were, they were separate offices. They also could not be prophets. So all prophet, priest, and king were separate offices, separate people. Uh, there was no crossover. And so you're already thinking to yourself, well, that's, you know, Christ is our prophet. Now he is our priest. So the Old Testament law, they were not to be the same position, in the same position. And so the priests, while holding an important position, they held one different than the king and the prophet. But notice in verses 1 and 2, Melchizedek's titles. He's called the king of Salem and king of righteousness and king of, priests, uh, of peace. 
So Melchizedek, what we do know about him from the writer of Hebrews is that Melchizedek was a part of a royal priesthood. He was a royal priest. His priesthood was royal. So he had, there, were, there was ruling and authority that was a part of this order. And so by saying that Christ is a, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, we know that Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood in that he holds authority because he is, in fact, a kingly priest. Now, I'm going to leave that there because Aaron's going to pick up on that next week as we look at Christ our King from Psalm 110. So that's number one. Number two, as I mentioned earlier, the Levitical priests had to make sacrifices to atone for their own sin before they could make sacrifices to atone for the sins of others. Why? Because they were sinful. They lacked the righteousness necessary. Uh, they, they were just like everybody else. Dead in their trespasses and sins. They, they, were, they were a sinful people. And so we read in verse 2, Melchizedek's name actually means king of righteousness. Now it doesn't mean that he himself was righteous because Melchizedek was as human as you and I. And so he, he was still sinful. But yet that, that name points us, presents a picture of who Christ as the Messiah would be as our, uh, as our righteousness. Christ's priesthood would be righteous in and of itself because he in and of himself was holy and righteous. And not only was the priesthood that he was a part of, or the priest, not only was he a holy and righteous priest, the sacrifice that he would offer would also be holy and righteous. Why? Because he himself was holy and righteous and without sin, and he, in fact, would be that sacrifice. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says in verse 26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Right? That, that gap is widening between Christ and and the Levitical priesthood. So by saying Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, we know that Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood and that he was sinless and righteous and would therefore obtain full and complete righteousness on behalf of his people because of the offering of himself. Something the Levites could not do. Ever. So third, notice... The order of these titles for Melchizedek. First, he's called king of righteousness. Then he's called king of peace. And why is that? Well, righteousness is necessary for peace to come. Without righteousness, there is no peace. And so a priest, uh, if people remain in their sin and they lack righteousness, they are not at peace with God. We talked about that in Ephesians chapter 2. And so the Levitical priesthood, because they were never able to provide a deep and lasting righteousness only succeeded in providing a temporary peace. Melchizedek, on the other hand, was called king of priests. Or, or uh, sorry, king of peace. And again, why is that? Well, we know that the prophet Isaiah referred to Christ as what? The prince of peace. And he's the prince of peace because Christ would obtain and provide complete and full righteousness, thereby, thereby providing full and complete peace. So Christ coming from the order of Melchizedek, the king of peace, 
We know that he is, Christ is, is greater than, better than the Levitical priesthood. Because he's not only a priestly, uh, kingly priest, but he's also a priestly king. Providing full and complete righteousness, providing full and complete peace. Something again the Levitical priesthood could not do. Fourthly, the Levitical priests had their position or status because they were from the tribe of Levi. In other words, it was heritage. Their father, those current priests, their fathers were priests. They were priests. Their sons would be priests. Why? Because it was a part of, they were all a part of the tribe. And it was all external. It was all inherited. It had nothing to do with personal, internal qualification. But it's interesting here that Melchizedek, and, and I'm sure you noticed this, Melchizedek, and, and, and the writer of Hebrews even says it, his geology isn't traced anywhere. It's not traced. And so there's no historical record of his beginning and his ending. Why is that? Well, it's, it's not about heritage for him. It was about God appointing him as a priest. And we know that this, the writer of Hebrews here that we read, he says that uh, Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Why? Because Abraham paid Melchizedek tithes, and it's as if the Levites were paying tithes to him. And it was Melchizedek who blessed Abraham, the father of the Levites, not the other way around. So we have the New Testament interpreting the Old Testament and seeing that Christ is, from the order of Melchizedek, a better priest than the Levitical priesthood because Christ... And, and, and the writer of Hebrews kind of associates this uh, together with Christ being from right, what, being an indestructible, or having an indestructible life. He is, has an indestructible life. And what does that mean? Well, He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was with God in the beginning... He was incarnated. He took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived, died, was buried, rose again, ascended to heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, fully alive for eternity. An indestructible life. So his priesthood has nothing to do with anything external or some inherited status. It has everything to do with the eternal. His priesthood is Permanent and eternal, not temporary. Look at verse 25. He says, Christ is perfect in his person and permanent in his role and as a priest, so he's able to save, but not just save, but save to the uttermost those who draw near. There is no lacking. In Him at all. And for those of you that are really looking for number five, I just combined the last two into number four. Some of you are going to struggle with that, I know, and so I'm telling you that in advance. I gave you five, you wrote down five numbers, and there's not going to be a five for you to fill in. The last two were combined. Alright? And I'll give them to you. Christ is superior in His Levitical priesthood in that He has an internal and inherent significance. Right? And also Christ, as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, is superior because his priesthood is eternal. Now, we run through that, and, that, and that's really fast. And, and, and in some cases we read through that, like we read through Leviticus, and we, can't, we, we start fading. Why is that important? 
What is significant? What's the, what's the so what? And what's the now what? Three things. Uh, there, there are more. There are always more. But three things in particular I think it would be good for us to grab a hold of and take with us this evening. And the first is this. Christ's better, perfect, and permanent priesthood should always, always, always remind us that a moral code and an outward system of rules may point us in the right direction, but they have no power to save us. Period. It's always been that way. And it will always be that way. They can't bring, that, that, those, again, that outward system or those rules, they can point us in the right direction, but they can't, they don't have the power to change the heart. They don't provide the motivation to move in a direction or to change direction in any way. And that kind of power, and we know we've, we've been in Ephesians, that kind of power only comes through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It and it alone has the power to save. It only comes through Christ's work on behalf of sinners and the Spirit sealing and indwelling us when we come to faith in Christ. It, it's only through trusting in Him alone for our salvation and our ongoing sanctification and glorification. There is no salvation apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, our great High Priest. Listen to these words from Richard Phillips. He says, the Christian, li- is li- Christian life is life in the Spirit of God, obeying and drawing near to God in spirit and in truth. This is not mysticism, it's not irrational, nor does it depend on emotions. Rather, it is the life of spiritual communion with God Himself as He takes the word He has given and writes it on our hearts and minds on the tablets of your very souls through the Holy Spirit as we trust in Christ our Savior and Lord. How do we get that spirit? How do, we, how, do, how do you get that spirit, it says? You get the spirit by fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ, turning to Him in faith, turning to Him who died for the forgiveness of sins, fulfilling the priesthood of Aaron, and who now lives forever as the eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek to grant you eternal life. Salvation is in Christ alone. In His work, not in ours. Secondly, Christ's better and perfect and permanent priesthood should always, should always remind us that Christ's intercession is ongoing and eternal. Ongoing and eternal. And I, I know that's hard for many. Maybe, maybe just some, but, but many, as I'm thinking about it, because there are many who think, and this, this goes on because I've had conversations with people. I've heard these words. But for many people, they think, you, you don't know. If I were to say Christ is, your, uh, is, is a high priest. According, well, I wouldn't say according to Melchizedek. But he is a high priest. Right? He, he has made a sacrifice of sins for you. And his, his priesthood is ongoing. He is interceding for you now. And, and I hear these words. You don't know the temptation I've been under and given into I hear people say you don't know what I've done 
How could Christ intercede and speak for me when I've sinned the way I've sinned? How can Christ intercede for me when I've sinned as much as I've sinned and as I continue to sin? First of all, let me say, hear these words from Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, the writer says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And then he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Amen. There is no sin so small that it doesn't need forgiveness, but there is no sin so great that it can't be forgiven. There is no sin that would stand between us and our great high priest who is interceding for us even now. And secondly, let me also say this, that I know some, again, through conversations, some would say that Christ's intercession would look something like this. You know, uh, Father, you know Christ at, at God's right hand, at the Father's right hand. And, and I don't mean to be flippant here by any means, but I, I've heard these, these exact descriptions. That Christ is at the Father's right hand and He says something like, Hey, um, give Chris a break. Father, give, give Chris a break. Um, he's trying really hard. You know, he's done better this year than he did last year. And, and that sin that he just... Remember the good thing that he did last week? I, I disagree with that. I disagree with that because I, he does speak. Of course he speaks on our behalf. But he doesn't have to speak as if we're being prosecuted or if it, as if God is angry and being restrained. Why? Because Hebrews 1.3 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Those sins have been paid for. Purification has been made. He sat down. Another reason, another difference from the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood never sat down because their job was never complete. They were always standing. Christ sits. Because He satisfied the debt that was owed. His work is finished. And so, please hear me. I, I, I think in, in many cases that, that the Lord Jesus, when He intercedes, sometimes I believe... His intercession as our advocate may simply look like this. He is mine. She is mine. His sins have been paid for. She's been sealed by the Spirit. Bear with me, but I I also believe that there are times that not a word is said. Because the Father sees the Son sitting at His right hand and sees His nail-scarred hands and feet and looks 
and says, I remember my promise. Because he sees us in Christ. And the Father doesn't do that begrudgingly. He does that lovingly and compassionately. And that is always the case regardless of the sin because Christ is our priest forever. His priesthood is perfect and permanent. Finally, Christ's better, perfect, permanent priesthood should always remind us that true worship, worship in spirit and in truth, begins at the point of acknowledging and recognizing our need, uh, our, our sin, and then the point of acknowledging and recognizing our need for a Savior and the need for forgiveness, and it continues at the point of understanding that Christ alone meets that need. That's where worship begins. That's where it continues. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest as we do in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was fitting for us. Perfect for us. And worship is not possible apart from that awareness. So let me ask you tonight, in light of that, are you aware of your sin? Are you aware of your need of forgiveness? Are you aware of your need of a Savior? And are you aware of the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and life? He is the only Savior that can forgive you of your sin. Brothers and sisters, we celebrate our better, perfect, and permanent priest. His first coming, His birth... But we also celebrate in advance and look forward to His coming again. At the end of chapter 9, verse 28, the writer says, He will come again. He will come again to save those who eagerly are waiting for Him. And to that we should say, Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.